Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Greetings this Lord's Day, this lovely September Lord's Day, in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. John starts his first epistle with these words. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John was a witness to the life of Jesus. He was a witness to all the miracles that he did, or a lot of the miracles he did. He was with him. He was a witness to his death and ultimately to his resurrection. That's a lot to be a witness of, right? You know, we don't really think of it in the legal terms as this, but there is a witness of an actual man to certain events. We sold a car recently and in order to have, you know, you get your something notarized, you got to have a that's, a, that's a witness. It's a person who puts a seal on that says, I saw, I witnessed this signature, you know. Being a witness is a very, very important thing. John was a witness of the life and death of Jesus. God gives all those who call upon his name the power to be witnesses of what he's done, though, in our lives. Amen? You know, we... Like the man, the blind man, he said, you know, I don't know all about who Jesus is and why he, all I know is what? Once I was blind, but now I, but now I see. We are witnesses, and so are our good brothers and sisters here in these pews of what God has done. We're not to be silent about it. Wherever we go, we should be talking about these things to the people we, that we meet. We should be saying, let me tell you about Jesus, let me tell you what I know about him. We should sing about it, pray about it, and testify to all that we meet. This is what the psalmist did in Psalm 96. Hear the word of the Lord as God calls us to worship, and we hear this wonderful song of praise from Psalm, 1, from Psalm 96. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord and bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, for he is feared above all gods. Don't, don't count it uh, silly and superfluous and to, to talk about how good God is. People might not like it, but you know when you hear someone talking good about somebody, 
And you hear them, you know, rather than how bad your week has been or how irritating your wife is or, or how much sleep you didn't get. If they are hearing about the goodness of God, you never know what it might just bring about. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations, they are but idols. But the Lord hath made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him and strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, and give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name and bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, for before him, fear before him all the earth, and say among the heathen, it's the Lord who reigns. The world shall be established that it shall not be moved, and he shall judge the people righteously. You ever hear people complaining about the government and complaining about how bad things are? Say, you know what, they're not reigning good. But let me tell you, there's one who reigns good. There's one whose testimony is true. There's one day there will be justice for all men. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful in all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth, and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with truth. Isn't that something to be excited about? All justice, everything that's in secret, everything that wasn't judged rightly will be made right one day by Jesus himself. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you've called us into your presence, Lord God, and that you've called us to be witnesses of your glory in the earth. Lord, I've seen firsthand how you can take a crooked thing and make it straight, how you can take a dead and broken and dark heart and you can bring life and light and righteousness into it lord i pray today lord that as we come into your presence lord that you would forgive us of our sins lord as we come longing to hear your voice lord that you would speak to us lord as we come hungering and thirsting that you would feed us and that you would change us that we might be more like you today in christ's name we pray and all the church said Amen. Please may standing for just a little bit here as I read for you my text from John chapter 19, verses 38 through 41. My sermon today is called Secret Disciples, Public witnesses. You may have already seen a theme to this today as we got our readings today from the story of uh, Jezebel and Naboth and how these false witnesses made this man condemned to death. You may have heard us talking about it from our psalm and even in our greeting today about testimony, about witnesses we're going today to be talking about two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus at the crucifixion. Our text from John chapter 19, starting in verse 38, says this. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. 
And there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe and a hundred pound weight. And they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that every detail that you have included was inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. Today, Lord, illuminate your word. Lord, help us to understand it. Speak to our hearts. Lord, help everyone within the hearing of these words be convicted on how we uh, do not do what your word says or do not understand it, but may we see how we might change from what we learn here so that we might indeed be conformed to the image of Jesus himself. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hasn't this journey through the life of Jesus uh, that we've been on together for more than two years, hasn't it been kind of wonderful? Um, for me it has been. Um, it's transformed my way of thinking, my ministry approach, my heart in so many different ways. And I'm, I'm really thankful that God's given me this job to bring the word of God, to rightly divide it for you. So as much as I am thankful for you, I pray that you can be thankful uh, for me. It's been a gift to me to be able to go through, to study these things out, to work on them. What a great blessing. Today, my sermon, as I told you before, is entitled Secret Disciples, Public Witnesses, and it focuses on the life of these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Isn't Arimathea kind of a cool name? I mean, you can name a child Arimathea. Arimathea is actually uh, was previously called Ramah, and it is where Elkanah and Hannah lived. Uh, when God answered their prayer to give them a son. And so Arimathea is Ramah. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and we're going to be talking about their role uh, that God had established before the foundation of the world as witnesses. Now the fact that we could spend many weeks on the last few days of the life of Jesus is really a great testimony in itself of the great richness of the word of God to his people. From the Last Supper to these last several sermons on the crucifixion, they have proved particularly beneficial uh, to my understanding of God and his word and what he expects of me as a man, as a pastor, as a father, as an elder in this church. Jesus led by example. Amen? You know, Jesus did more. Then he said, now, you know, it's, it's almost like you're almost afraid to say, we should listen to more what he did than what he said. I'm not, I'm not, there's no real comparison. What Jesus said by what he did was amazing. What Jesus said was amazing. And sometimes we need to look at the example of what he, what he did as much as what he said. Jesus did both perfectly, did he not? In everything he said and everything he did. And I... I pray that at every opportunity I have, I can at least cast a shadow of that. The Bible says that's what, Andy, that's what my, you're my job is, is to be an example to the flock. Now, 
During the past several weeks, we have talked about four soldiers. Everybody say four soldiers. Two malefactors. Three Marys. And two witnesses. Two secret witnesses. Two, two men who were, they weren't secret witnesses. They were secret disciples. And they were public witnesses. We talked about the four soldiers who mocked Jesus, yet fulfilled more scriptures in their evil deeds than anyone else in the New Testament other than Jesus himself. We looked at the two malefactors crucified with Jesus and watched as they both gave testimony of the depravity of man, but one ultimately gave proof of his mercy and his power to save regardless of the man's ability to respond. And last, we looked at the three Marys, bitter as they were, uh, strong as they were, standing with unwavering faith as they also drank the bitter cup of the death of Christ. And now we turn our attention to these two very special witnesses. They are two more witnesses that were there that day, but the other witnesses wouldn't have mattered so much. Women were not considered important witnesses in any legal discourse. Slaves were not. People of questionable reputation were not really considered to be credible witnesses. But these were two very special witnesses that God furnished for this occasion. These two men were not with him at the Last Supper. They did not wait with him in the garden at his greatest temptation as he sweat great drops of blood. They were not there when the torch and weapon-carrying mob came to the Garden of Gethsemane and grabbed him in the middle of the night. They were not there when they beat him and called on him to save himself or even when he offered his enemies not only his other cheek but he offered his forgiveness to them they weren't there where were Nicodemus and where was Joseph of Arimathea then I'll tell you where they were they were in hiding where they had been for a lot of years or at least a long period of time maybe maybe as many as three years these two secret disciples of our Lord only emerge after the blood and water had issued forth from the side of Christ and the earth had quaked and trembled and this wanton act of blasphemy was done. There in the darkness, these two men came out of hiding. I think it's kind of a neat picture. It was dark, right? Christ, as the Bible says, it became dark in the middle of the day and for several hours in the middle of the day, it was dark. And so these men really didn't even emerge from the shadows. They emerged in the shadows. It was in the darkness of the middle of the day that gave them cover they needed to show themselves for what they had hidden from the world. These two wealthy and important men, important to the legal system of Israel, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, had hidden their faith until this moment. But now they were out in the open, out of the shadows. They were here for a very special purpose. They would serve as two credible witnesses. Everybody say credible witnesses. Hopefully you don't watch the news very much, but if you do, you've heard this term over the last week over and over and over. This woman is a credible witness. She's a credible witness. She's a credible witness of the evil, horrible, terrible, nasty man that Brett Kavanaugh is. She's a credible witness. Well, what makes her so credible? Is she a credible witness? 
You know, I don't normally get political and get talk about the things of the day, but we are, it's amazing that this sermon happened right now at this moment. And so it must be providential that we talk about it. We're living in an era today where someone can come and say whatever they want about whoever they want. And before they know it, they've lost their job. They've lost their reputation. They sometimes, uh, you know, get in very, very serious trouble, maybe even have been killed. People today will make accusations against... We're living in a dangerous time, folks. We're living in a time that if our enemies who are squirming right now in terror about what might be happening, make no mistake about it, they know what's going to happen if Brett Kavanaugh gets on the Supreme Court. We don't know for sure all the things are going to happen, but I can tell you what, that as a strict constitutionalist, he's not going to uphold gay marriage. He's not going to uphold affirmative action. He's not going to uphold uh, many of the things that people consider rights. There'll be no more, uh, you know, sisters of mercy having to pay for abortions or so forth and so on. Is it going to happen? They know this is happening and they're in sheer terror. And their weapons that they have formed against the church of the living God, against now the political leaders that God has set up to our nation, these weapons are evil. And you know what they realize? They're like, all we've got to do is have someone who just accuses them of something. You remember how they tried it with Clarence Thomas, but he made it through. One woman who made an accusation about something that was never seen, was never corroborated with nothing, but it almost thwarted his appointment to the bench. We see how they did it with Roy Moore down in uh, Alabama, whether he was guilty or not. I don't know, but there certainly wasn't a trial there certainly wasn't a, a test of the credibility of the witnesses. None of that happened and still what? And so he was tried in the court of public opinion. And now we have a man who by uh, the admission of everyone that's known him for the last 30 to 40 years of his life says, you know, he's one of the best human beings you will ever meet who has incredible character. Now, I'm not here to defend Brett Kavanaugh. He may be a scallywag. I have no idea. But what I am saying is that when you live in a day where people will lie to get what they want, just like Nabus Vineyard, doesn't it make you sick? The man had a vineyard and he had something that someone else wanted and people were willing to lie to get it. And they didn't just kill him, Tim. That would have been bad, right? But they wanted to do it how? They wanted to do it legally. So what did they do? They have set it up. They accused him of something he did wrong. They had witnesses testify against him. They had him judged and they had him taken out and they had him stoned. You see, the enemy's done this before and it appears he's trying to bring this about again in our time. There are times when even the justice system can be derailed, but God has made provision for this. Folks, telling the truth is important. And God's word, when it tells us in the eighth command to not bear false witness, it's actually more directed toward testimony in court proceedings than it is in anything. And folks, right now, this is an important matter for us, and I'm kind of jumping ahead. So who were these guys? This is what was so interesting to me, Steve, and I'm reading about these guys, and you know, I've read these Bible stories lots of times, but when I'm going to teach on it now, I'm getting older, I've studied and taught you know, my whole life, and all of a sudden I come to something, I go, oh, this is really interesting. So one of the names of these men is very familiar to us all, and we'll start off with him because most of us have heard of him. How many know the name Nicodemus? 
Come on now, wake up. I, I may preach for two hours if you don't straighten up. <laughs> We've heard the name Nicodemus. Everybody knows about the story, how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, right? Everyone knows that story. Even little kids know that story. His name, uh, Nicodemus. He, he, our old friend John the Beloved devotes nearly half a chapter to Jesus meeting Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And then later, he devotes nearly 30 verses to a story where Nicodemus plays a pivotal role in John chapter 7. And so then we see it later at the end here in our text. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, they say nothing about Nicodemus. And once again, it's another one of these things where, remember when we talked about the ear of the man that was cut off? With Mal remember his name, Malchus? And remember how there's more details about the fact that Peter was the, actually the one that did the cutting off, right? That's included in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't talk about. What you may have is that the, quote, the statute of limitations or the trouble time is passed over, and so it's, they're able to talk about. So when uh, Luke and Matthew and Mark were writing, uh, Nicodemus uh, and his role in this was maybe a little bit something they were afraid to talk about. They didn't want to get him in trouble. They didn't want to get him thrown out. They didn't want to get him, um, they didn't want to mess up his life. But John introduces us to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, tells us more about him in John 7, but then brings it all to bear. You'll see why here in John 19 in our text. The Bible tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, okay? And you've heard me talk about Pharisees before. Um, but let's put them in the context of today. How many people know what a Republican is and a Democrat? Raise your hand if you know what a Republican. I'm going to have you raise your hands because I'm just wanting to make sure you're all the way. Re Re Republicans and Democrats, right? We all know what they are, or at least we think we do. Well, in the days and the time of Christ, there were two political parties. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Makes it simple, right? They were the two main political parties, and they were political, but they were also theological. They believed differently. They had a different approach to the understanding of the Word of God. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a guy who was a hardcore right-winged conservative. And the Sadducees, uh, they, they were the left-wingers, you might want to say. Uh, they didn't believe in many of the miraculous things. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and, and they, were, they were suspicious of these things. But the Pharisees were hardcore, right-winger, adhered to the Word of God, and the Sadducees were the more liberal thinkers, more... Uh, the Bible is types and shadows kind of people. So, John Calvin says that Nicodemus was a senator. Uh, but unfortunately, I always agree with Calvin whenever I have the opportunity to, but I can't find any, any reason to, 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 to agree with him on this. Uh, but, but then again, Calvin knows more than I do, so I'm not going to disagree with him too much. Uh, perhaps it was because he wrote what he wrote in French and it was translated to English and so senator maybe just means ruler of some kind but we know that he was definitely a ruler right he was a ruler of the Jews and um, most commentators say that he was a ruler on the Sanhedrin everybody say Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin. so what is the Sanhedrin I mean you you know it's a it's it, they do something it's something important right and this is the part that I thought was very interesting in light of what our, our uh, current uh, events are today, Paul. The Sanhedrin is a court. And it's not just any court, but the Sanhedrin, Benita, is the supreme court of Israel. 
There are 71 member judges on this panel, and when they would hear a case, they would all argue and they would debate over the validity of the case, and then they would make a decision. So you could have a lot of people that were a part of this band that were on this judge panel, like our Supreme Court in our nation, and those men could disagree. Nicodemus was on the Sanhedrin, according to most commentators, and the Bible says he was on the council. And so the Sanhedrin uh, is very um, pivotal in what happens to Jesus, and we'll see this in a minute. It's the Sanhedrin that tried Jesus, that condemned Jesus, and that ultimately sentenced him to death. And so Nicodemus was a part of this band of believers. Or believers. He was part of this band of judges. Whatever position he did hold exactly, it's not important for our purposes today. That's not the most important thing, but there are a few things that can't be missed. He was important. Everybody say he was important. He was, important. He was politically connected. He was an elder in Israel. And he understood the law. And he was wealthy. I mean, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of good things in your favor, right? you got a good reputation. you got a lot of money. You're politically connected. Uh, you're an elder, literally an elder. You have been picked by your people to represent you. This was all what Nicodemus was. This was not a lightweight. This was not a marginal character. He wasn't some guy somewhere. He was someone that everyone met. You can actually read about him. Uh, a man by his same name at the same period of time in Jewish antiquity and history and the man was renowned for his wisdom and his wealth and importance. We don't know for sure if he's the same one, but he may have been. We learn about him here in John chapter 3 when it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. And if you are paying attention to the story and you're thinking about it, you're understanding what's happening here, Nicodemus is important and he's wealthy and he's connected and he's all these things, but that means he has a lot to lose. And so he doesn't come to Jesus in the middle of the day and stand at his feet and listen to him talk. He comes by night and he gets a special meeting with Jesus alone. He's not one of the thousands on the hillside that are calling out to him or someone pressing through the crowd. He gets a special meeting with Jesus by night. Now Jesus doesn't treat him with respect like uh, someone beyond these other people, but he does meet with him quietly and in the dark of night under cover of darkness. And what we find is that Nicodemus uh, kept this meeting private and the results of it for quite a while. He said to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher from, come from God, and no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So what is Nicodemus doing, Andy? He's explaining, he's, he's really declaring his faith. We know that you must be from God. He calls him rabbi. He talks to him with respect. And he says, we, and this is one of these things you can miss. We know. Who's he talking about? Maybe, sir, there are some other people on the Sanhedrin. Maybe there are some other Jewish leaders we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And we know that you can't do these things that you're doing, these miracles that you're doing. They had witnessed it, they had seen it, and they knew better. Obviously, he was saying he was representing others among the ruling class that held the same position. Jesus would have understood this. Maybe even Joseph of Arimathea was being included because Joseph of Arimathea 
as you'll find out, guess what he was a part of too, Steve? He was on the Sanhedrin. He was on the Supreme Court too. Isn't this kind of neat? We know. Now, Joseph doesn't come out of the darkness at this point. He's still a secret guy, but he's watching too. He's hearing about the miracles that are going on. And so Nicodemus comes and represents him. We know. (laughs) Maybe it was just him and Joseph. Maybe there were a bunch of them. I don't know. But we know they certainly didn't have the majority, right? So now we're all familiar with what happens to next in this incredible meeting. But you might not remember all the details. So I'm going to go through this quickly. But when I get to the detail that's pertinent, I'll slow down, okay? Remember it? You remember he comes to Jesus and he says, what must a man do to go to heaven, right? He says, verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus questions him what do you mean right and he goes into all these things marvel not i say to you you must be born again the wind blows where it listeth right now nicodemus after hearing all this he answers and he says well how can these things be and to sort of uh underscore the importance of nicodemus here in john chapter 3 jesus answered he says aren't you a master aren't you one of the rulers of israel and you don't know this He's saying, you know, you got a great reputation. You're politically connected. You're on the Supreme Court. You know the law better than anybody, and you don't know this. Kind of adds a little something to the story here in John chapter 3, right? More evidence. Verily I say unto you. And this is what, when you read this John 3 with this in mind, it will change the way you read it forever, okay? Jesus says next, verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak and we know and we testify. What kind of word is testify? It's not just a Pentecostal or a Baptist word. What, what is it? It's a legal term, right? I'm coming to testify about how good God is. Yeah, but before it was that, it was testimony, right? We speak and we know, we testify that which, and you receive not our witness. He's talking to a judge, Luke. He's talking to a man who's on a court. And he's saying, you know that what you're seeing is true. But yet you're not listening to the witness of the events you're seeing, of the people that are being healed, and you're not listening to me. So what is he doing? He's turning the judge's words on himself. Instead of reading my sermon, I keep wanting to preach it to you, and then I keep realizing i got to stop. Nicodemus had already said that he'd heard and believed the witness of Jesus, right? Jesus is saying to him that he knew what he was... He knew what Jesus was doing was true, incredible, yet he had not received him as the Christ. This is what people do. Out in the world today, they know things that are true, but they don't... They they know if they receive them as credible, there are implications, right? They're not really trying, they don't really think that these people are so bad. They're trying to find a way to not let them be. They're trying to find anything. They're trying to do what they were doing to Jesus. Don't you remember what they did to Jesus? They kept following him around. They kept asking him questions. Why? Because they were trying to do what Jezebel had done to Naboth, right? Let's get some people near him, some low-life people, and let them testify. They did this to Stephen. Do you guys remember this in the book of Acts? They get some people around. They said, we heard him say this, and we heard him say that. They're a bunch of liars. Got to watch who you hang around. They put some low-life people around who'd be willing to lie to get what they wanted, and they did. They lied, and they got him killed. They got Stephen killed. They got David killed, 
And they get Jesus killed the same way. They're a bunch of liars. Jesus is letting it be known. He knows they're a bunch of liars and he knows what they're about. You're not believing my testimony. You're not believing my word, but yet you know you should. I'm a credible witness. Verse 12, if I've told you of earthly things and you believe me not. See, we think about this in the, in the terms of, you know, coming to Jesus at an altar. He's talking to a judge. I've told you of earthly things. You don't believe me. How shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly? Here I am. I'm in a court of law. And I'm like, this man was here on this date and I got proof and I got a picture. You won't believe that, but I'm going to tell you about heaven and where you can't validate it and you can't verify it. And you're going to believe me then? He's like, how should I do this? He goes, he goes, no man can go to heaven, but that he come down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. He's saying, you can't go to heaven and take a deposition, Tim. You can't go and get a witness. Only people you're going to get witnesses from are people that are alive. And there are people who are being healed. And their lives are being changed. And I'm speaking the truth. And I'm not doing anything wrong. And yet, what do you want to do? You want to treat me like Jezebel and Naboth? Is that what you want to do? And he's, he's making a case against... Jesus is making a case against them. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he's going to be crucified, lifted up on a pole. I'm sure he didn't understand it at the time, but I'm sure he did later. Nicodemus would have to believe that Jesus and his words were true in order to escape the judgment of God. You see, God was building a case against these people. He's saying, look, I'm going to prove it beyond a shadow of doubt. I'm going to provide credible witnesses. I'm going to make an airtight case for my innocence and for your guilt. And in the end, when the judgment comes, it will come because you are guilty and it can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, when we think of John 3.15, we never think of it in this context. He said, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting God, for everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. What? Who condemns anybody? It's judges, right? And he's turning them around and he's saying, Nicodemus, you're a judge and you know what it is to condemn people. But I'm telling you, there's a judge who's going to be condemning you. This is pretty scary stuff, guys. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed. What didn't they believe? They didn't believe a credible witness. I mean, Steve, if you knew a guy who could walk on water and feed 5,000 and raise up dead people and never sinned, never broke one law, never even halfway did that, and yet you go, oh, you know what? You can't believe this guy. And that's what they'll do. That's what they'll do down at the court. Oh, this guy, they're calling him a rapist. Because in 36 years ago, a girl says maybe he might have done whatever. And the people that were in the room say, what are you talking about? But yet still what? It goes on. It's a farce. Why is it a farce? Because he's guilty before he's even been tried. Now, Brett Kavanaugh and whatever, he's nothing. But what I'm telling you is this same thing. Gee, this is what they're doing to Jesus. They're laying a trap. He says this in verse 9. He said, this is the condemnation that the light came in the world but men loved darkness. You know, when we don't want to do something, when man doesn't want to do something, he finds a way to discredit the one that's standing in his way. I'm telling you, it is what man does. For everyone that doth evil hates the light and never comes to the light, lest their deeds are reproved. 
But he that doth truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest. Isn't this incredible? I think so. We're just getting started. Now let's see what happens to Nicodemus next. It's not 100% uh, clear exactly what happened in his heart. I think that it seems clear to me, honey, that what he did was he came to say, you know what, I don't want to be condemned. You're right. I believe on you. It doesn't tell us that, though, in John 3. But next we hear of Nicodemus. We hear about him in John chapter 7, which is four chapters later. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He tells them he's the bread of life. He tells them he's the, the food that rained down from God from heaven and fed the Israelites for 40 years on their way to the promised land. At the beginning of John 7, Jesus, it says that he would no longer go among the Jews because all they wanted to do was find a way to kill him. So the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand and Jesus goes to these because he's not going to break the law by not coming to these. And so he comes. But how does Jesus go? He comes secretly. So now Jesus is coming to the tabernacle secretly, not because he's ashamed of God, but because these people are trying to kill him. John chapter 7. Jesus says this in verse 19. Did not Moses give you your law and yet none of you keeps it? What's Jesus doing here? He's building a case against them. He's asked the question, why do you go about trying to kill me? If you recall, he does this. It's in all the Gospels. He keeps saying, you're trying to kill me, aren't you? Why are you doing it? You don't have any reason. You have no legal reason. You, aren't you people of the law? Don't you believe in the law? Do you see what he's doing? He's building a case. There was a murder plot taking place here. And there would be witnesses to it. There would be an illegal and unjust murder. And the lawyers were the ones plotting it. I mean, this sounds so much like what's going on right now. The Department of Justice, the people that work in it are plotting to do what? To convict our president of something which he didn't do. So what are they doing? They're just trying to find anything he can, anything he might have done. Maybe, maybe he did do it. The people answered and they said, this man has a devil. Like, who's trying to kill you? You know, this is what the, this is what the enemy does. It, you know. You mean you think we're trying to hurt you? I mean, no, we just want to get to the bottom of the facts. We just want to get down to it because we care so much. I mean, don't you care about crime? Jesus answered and said, I have done work and you all marveled. You all see this. You, all see, you saw me feed 5,000 people and you all wondered over it. Moses gave you circumcision, not because of it. Moses, but because of his forefathers and you circumcised men on the Sabbath. And that, he goes in this thing. You're, you're, you're cutting people and you're doing this work on the Sabbath because you don't want to break the law. These guys were all about the law. Don't you remember what they do at the crucifixion? They're so concerned about the law. They, they crucify him unjustly, but then they don't want him to sit there all night long. So they go to break the legs of the people to make sure they die because they don't want to break the law. It's disgusting. They use the law for their own purposes. Jesus is arguing that the standards of the law, which in the standards he had done no wrong, and instead they were the ones that didn't know the law and they were breaking it. Verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. This is what he's telling this group of judges because they come to him. They're mad. They don't like the fact that he told them he was the bread of life. They swirl around him and they start talking and they start talking among themselves. We need to kill this man. Verse 25, is not this a man 
Isn't he the guy? So the people who are watching Andy, they're not the Pharisees, they're not the judges. They come around, they're like, isn't this the one they're all trying to kill right now? They just said no one was trying to kill him. They're like, they're definitely, they're like, they're like getting money out everywhere, hoping someone will testify against Jesus. They're, they're trying to get someone to find something wrong. And they're like, isn't he that one? And then did they just argue that they're not doing that? Everybody knew they were trying to find a way to kill him. But Jesus not only did nothing wrong, worthy of death, all of his deeds were lovely. This is what was making their case worse. This is why the ungodly do to the righteous. They seek to kill them even when they do only good. This is very twisted, but it's going on right now, as we know. Verse 26, Lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Don't the rulers indeed know that he is the Messiah? The people know it. He's the Messiah. How be it? And then they argue, some argue, well, you know, we'll know where he comes from. He'll, he won't really be from here. He'll be this, he'll be that. They argue about it. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the people murmured things concerning him. The Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. These were Nicodemus' people. They were Pharisees that Nicodemus was joined with. They were part of his group. He was either, he was some elected official or he was on this council for sure. So Jesus is there and, he, and now they watch him. And it says, in the last day he stands up on the great day of the feast, right? Remember? And he says, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Remember we talked about this? It, every day they were bringing the water from the, from the pool over here and they were bringing it and they were pouring it, right? And on the last day, he's, they, they weren't bringing any water. Jesus stand there on this water and they're like, oh my word, he's really claiming to be the Messiah. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow ribbing waters. You know, we don't really think of what Jesus was doing was a legal sense, but God wrote the law and it was. He's saying, you need to believe me. We think belief and we think of it as a religious term about faith. And he's saying, I have shown evidence. The testimony of me is true. What I've done is right. Believe me. He wasn't asking them to believe something that was impossible. He was asking them to believe that he was who he said he was based on the miracles he was doing. And based on the life he was living. Trust me. I'm credible. Believe me. Look at the testimony. And they weren't believing it. Do you see what I'm saying? Could you imagine watching a trial like this? You know the guy's completely innocent, but everyone won't believe him, and they won't believe him. And all that people want to say is good about him, but these people that hate him, they're liars. The Bible says many of these people believed. So the officers and the chief priests come in verse 45 of John 7, and they say, where is he? Where is he? Why haven't you brought him here? We're ready, to, we're ready to convict him. The officer, never a man ever spoke like this. The, the Pharisees answered, are you deceived too? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Aha, uh -huh. now this, is a, this would have been a real good time for Nicodemus to speak up, but he doesn't speak up and say, well, I do. And my buddy Joseph of Arimathea, he does too. He, they don't say it, but he, but he doesn't stay silent, Jonathan. He does speak. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed this? And this is verse where Nicodemus comes in in verse 50. Nicodemus said, and then it puts in parentheses, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, so he was on their council. Does our law judge any man before it hears him? Can you see what's going on here? He's now, Nicodemus is one of the judges. Does our law judge a man before we even hear the case against him? Or know what he does? 
They answered and they said, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. And every man went to his own house. So he diffused this, this push to kill Jesus by taking them to the law and say, you know, you're breaking the law of testimony. Now, this made me curious about this, you know, and, and maybe you're too tired to be curious as I was. Uh, but it made me curious about the law. You know, we have laws in the Bible about testimony, about witnesses, about judges, about investigation, all that stuff. All the stuff in our, that our country, that makes our country the greatest nation on earth, it comes from the word of God. Okay? And so there is a whole section in Deuteronomy 17 and 19 about where these laws come from. And it would be great. I don't have time to go through them all here, but it would be great for you to take your family through this and look at it as we're looking at what's going on in our nation right now with the Me Too movement, with this desire to destroy people who are wanting to be confirmed to the highest offices in the land. They're, they're talking about if they win the election, they're wanting to impeach our president. And there's not one shred of evidence so far he's done anything wrong. But they don't care because his presidency threatens what they want. It's in the way. Now, it doesn't matter. He may have done a million bad things we don't know about. But so far, they haven't proved any of it, right? So Deuteronomy 17 said, here's what you do. Okay, I'm going to read this for you. If there be it among you within the gates of the Lord, thy God, a man or a woman, who hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord, and he transgresses the covenant, and he served other gods, worshiped them. He's talking about idolaters. He either worships the sun or the moon or the host of heaven, which I told you not to do. And if someone tells you about it and you've heard it and you have, and, and see, people don't look real closely at the word of God because it tells you what to do. He says, so you've heard about it, you inquired diligently, and you have determined that it's true. Okay, this is a three-part process. You heard about it, you investigated it, and then you determine through reasonability that it's true. Here's what you do. Thou shalt bring forth that man or woman who has committed the wicked thing into your gates, even the man or woman, and they shall stone them until they die. Now, God knew something, Stephen, that, about human nature that we would think is impossible. And he would go, you know, there'll be people that say people do it just so they'll get killed because they just hate them. He knew this. He says in verse 6, At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, he that is worthy to death shall be put to death. But in the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. So what does God's word say about convicting a guy on the evidence of one witness? You can't do it. Now then he says in verse 7, he says, The hands of the witness shall first be the one. So the one who has brought the accusation needs to pick up the first rock and hit him in the head. Wow. He's forcing them to face their... You know, he's allowing the, the, the condemned to face his accuser. The hands of the witness shall be first upon him to be put to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, okay? So in Deuteronomy 19, God clarifies this even more and gets even more specific about this. Deuteronomy 19, 15, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. If any sin that he sins at the mouth of two witnesses or the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Now, I'm going to throw a little application in here because I'm afraid you're all going to fall asleep before I get done here. But when you're dealing with your children and when you're dealing with the church, you can't hear accusations from one of your tattletale children. 
When it comes to something serious, sometimes we need to investigate a little bit. All right? We had a bad situation in our home when we were doing foster care. We had a child who would lie about our other children. It was very sad. He would cut himself, and then he would come and say, look what, look what so-and-so did. He, would, he was lying. And I would discipline my children. Finally, my children like, came up. They're like, Dad, this, this guy's evil. He's living in our house. He's lying. He's making, he's hurting himself. He's showing you the red mark he did to himself. And I'm like, wow, how could this be that anyone would be so twisted? But he was. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. And this is what he says. He says, if a false witness rise up against any man and testify against him, he that which is wrong, then both men between whom the controversy shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges which are in those days. So the accuser's got to come forward, right? And the person accused has to come forward. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition and behold the witnesses, if he finds the witnesses to be false and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do to him as he has thought to have done to his brother. This is really scary. You ever, anybody ever do this with your kids? So the kid comes and, he, and, and Naomi comes and she says, and I know she's probably tough like this, and she goes, Micah has done this thing to me and he needs a spanking. And you find out she made it up the whole time. So what do you do? She gets the thing that <clears throat> he was going to get. Okay? That's what the Bible says to do. Whatever bad thing that was going to happen to the guilty <clears throat> is going to happen to the lying tattletale. Okay? Now, of course, none of all of you have godly children, and none of you would ever, ever have anything like this go on in your house. But there is a remedy. If you find out you have a child who lies on the other children in your house so that they can't get to go to the thing, or so that they get a spanking, or so that they get in trouble, and you find out they're telling lies, you need to deal with them. And you go, well, now that's a little silly. I, I think it's a great deterrent, okay? And to drive this into the ground even more, God says this, okay? He says, and those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And then he gives them this command. Now, of course, we're not talking about little kids in the house, okay? But we're talking about very serious matters. If you're accused of rape, you're accused of murder, you're accused of horrible things, right? You're going to do some serious time in prison, right? God commands them to have no pity on the accuser. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of hard to go, well, they didn't actually kill anybody. They just wanted somebody to be killed. So we're not going to do anything real bad to them, right? God says, you may not have pity on these people. No pity. Life shall go for life. I shall go for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. That's pretty, that's pretty severe, pretty rough. Wouldn't that come in handy, though, in today's politics, in today's court system? People who accuse people falsely, they'd think twice about doing it if they knew they were going to pay for this, you know. So-and-so did this to me. Okay, well, let's find out if you're lying or not. 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul uses this same principle, and he actually takes it to another level in the church. Do you know this exists in the church today? But it exists on another level. And once again, this is, self, this is something that would protect me. It would protect Andy as well. 
When you have people that are of good reputation and you have people that are elders and people that are honored in your midst, not only are you, would you have to have two or three witnesses against them to prove them, but if you don't have two or three witnesses, you can't even hear an accusation against them to begin with. 1 Timothy 5.19, against an elder, receive not an accusation. It doesn't say, you know, don't even start it. Don't even hear it before two or three witnesses. This is one way the church honors the honorable among them and protects them against false claims. So now we come to Nicodemus here in John 19. Here he is hiding no more, bringing burial spices, nearly 75 pounds worth in our day of measurement, ready to bury the Lord in an honorable fashion. I was trying to understand this, and as you can see, I've been building on this, that God has him come out in the open, and he's there to witness that Jesus had actually died. Because what do you think part of this court case is going to be challenged? He didn't really die. I mean, yeah, he rose from dead, but he really didn't die. He, he, they put him in a grave, and, and he was mostly dead. And he didn't really die, and he walked around. And they do this. This is what that happens later on. He didn't really die, or we didn't know. But here you have a man who's on the Supreme Court of Israel, who's wealthy, who's politically connected, who God put in this place for this moment. He comes, and when he brings, he brings enough spices and enough stuff. And the Bible says he buries him according to the Jews. He buries Jesus in great ceremony with an incredible amount of money. He gets an honorable burial. This didn't happen to criminals, but it did to Jesus. Yes, he died the death of a criminal, but he was not buried the death of a criminal. He's put in a hewn out sepulcher that no one ever laid in before. They didn't clean out the old bones, but it was just made out of rock. It was brand new, like the new colt Jesus rode on the triumphal entry, okay? And they came and they brought 75 pounds of precious ointment, which is a massive amount of money, massive amount, you know, of these spices. And Joseph of Arimathea, he's, he's with him and Nicodemus, and they're there. I'll read it for you, John 19. After Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. So now Joseph is not hiding anymore, right? He's going right to the Roman leader and he's going, I want the body of Jesus. He'd been a secret disciple up until this point, Andy, but not now. And he goes and he gets the body. Jesus, Pilate gave uh, him leave. Why? Well, here's an important man. Here's a wealthy man. He's a connected man. Joseph of Arimathea is just like Nicodemus in this. Verse 39, there came Nicodemus also, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought the mixture of myrrh and aloe, a hundred pound weight. And they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes after the manner of the Jews. Now, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were together as secret disciples. Matthew 27, 57 describes Joseph of Arimathea as a, simply as a rich man and a disciple of Jesus back in, in, in Matthew 27. According to Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of Israel, who was also, it says, looking for the kingdom of God. Luke 23 says that... Um, Joseph of Arimathea had also done what Nicodemus had done. You know how Nicodemus argued with them about not hearing an accusation against Jesus in, in John 7? Apparently Joseph of Arimathea had done this as well when he was at the council. It said he had not consented to their decision and action. Do you know when a court, a, a panel of judges works, and we have this, and you may not know this, that we have panels of judges at the federal level. 
And we have them at the supreme level. You understand this? That, that there are three judges or five judges sometimes in these courts. And these judges all together will get together. And when they come out, they come out with one decision. But they also have a decision of the minority. They have what they call the dissenting opinion. Okay? And so you could, even though all of them come together, there's only one decision that comes out. And so... This right here is in reference to that. Joseph of Arimathea had been a part of the group that had gotten together to decide to kill Jesus. But he was saying, no, this is not right. We shouldn't do it. Don't do it. And at that point, though, he probably had not come out that he was a follower of Jesus. But here he was standing up for Jesus there in the court. So both of these men had done this. Imagine that these men were on the panel of men who decided the death of Jesus. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine watching that happen, Andy? Being on the court that decides the death of your Lord and your Savior, who you believed in, and you were on it, and your court, your, your session kills him. They were part of the judgment against him, his own disciples, because they were part of the court. They were on the inside of the life of Jesus. They were on the inside of the high court of Israel. And now they would stand as witnesses to his death. For as important as it was to be able to say that with certainty he was crucified, it needed to be say that he had died. And as certain as it was that he, there were testimony about him raising from the dead, there had to be a certainty of his death. These men were unquestionable, unimpeachable, and that's what God had chosen them for. According to John 19.38, upon hearing of Jesus' death, the secret disciple of Jesus asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Joseph immediately purchased, according to Mark 15, 16, a linen shroud and proceeds to Golgotha to take the body of Jesus from the cross. So here these guys were. They were secret. Now they're not secret. They're wealthy, important, connected. And here they are with the dead body of Christ. And they see him dead. They prepare him for his burial. Isn't that the way God would do it? You see, there was a Roman standard of witness in that day. Women were not considered poor. The poor were not considered credible. And so we have these wealthy, connected men who were chosen by God to fit this role as actual witnesses. One of Joseph's roles was fulfilling Isaiah's prediction that the grave of the suffering servant would be with the rich man. Isaiah 53, 9 he was assigned to the grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus could not have been more credible witnesses. And here we see John using them to settle the case of the question of the death of Jesus once and for all. No one could question the, these men. You know, God picks us out for certain things. Had Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come out publicly, would their, would their testimony have been as much? Would they have been able to be there to try to do something? They were doing their best in their role on the Sanhedrin. God gives us his beautiful law and it applies to every area of life, things that are going on right now in public life, things that are, you know, there will be kids in here that will learn to study the law, that will understand this. I believe we'll have lawyers here 
And when we understand that the basis of law is in the word of God itself and that the flawless principles that are here create a safer environment and a more beautiful and lovely environment. But what we'll also learn is there are people who don't really come right out and say what they believe about Christ, but eventually in their life, they're going to need to do it. Amen? And God had preserved them for that day. And here they were on that day, ready to do what they were going to do. And not only did they get a reward for it, that their names are included for posterity, but could you imagine that the grave that you made for yourself end up being the grave where the Messiah, the Son of God, is resurrected from? Not only probably did not, you know, no man ever laid in it before, I don't think probably any man ever laid in it after. Because the, it's over there. They say it's over there. They say you can go see it. I don't really know if that's the case. We'll see maybe one day. But here we are. That place is there. A grave nobody ever laid in but the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let us pray. Lord Jesus, you're so good to us. You love us, Lord. These stories of your word, these details are so incredible and so pertinent. Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we hear them, we would remember them. We would talk about them. We would apply them in our families and even in our political discourse, our discussions about what goes on. Let us look to your word to find solutions and answers and, and to help us understand how not to fall in the pitfalls that societies have fallen in over and over. Lord, I pray, Lord, that our children would not only not bear false witness and, and our brothers and sisters, that we would be truth tellers, Lord God, but that we would be true witnesses of you to other people, to people that we meet, true witnesses in our home. Lord, I pray that the leaders of this church would be true witnesses of what your word says we should be. Let us indeed be good examples to the flock. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.